0: Beloved, if you'd please turn with me to the book of Romans, if you have a copy of God's Word, Romans chapter 11. Uh, This morning, uh, we will resume our our series, Romans 11, and we'll look at verses 25 through 32 uh, this morning. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I am going to read uh, verses 1 through 32 to give us some context because of how uh, much uh, how important it is that we get context as we look at this, this section. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. In order, somehow, to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the, fu- until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage of scripture and all that it has to teach us about your sovereign electing grace, about your mysterious work of salvation among Israel and among the Gentiles and bringing Gentiles and Jews together to be the one people of God, the church. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this text and once again point our hearts to Jesus Christ, who is our life and salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. While all scripture is true, some parts are harder to understand than others. Amen? <laughs> there are passages a small child can grasp and others that stretch the minds of seasoned theologians. This was certainly the case with Paul's inspired letters. Some parts are are challenging, aren't they? Even the Apostle Peter in his second epistle expressed that there are, quote, some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. That's 2 Peter 3.16. Now, if the Apostle Peter felt this way, surely we will at times feel this way too. Indeed, especially in sections like Romans chapters 9 through 11 where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives attention to the mysterious and sublime doctrine of divine election. And divine election as it relates to the nation of Israel, that privileged nation to whom belonged great spiritual blessings, and yet who, in large part, throughout their history, lived in rebellion and unbelief, and finally rejecting God's Messiah Jesus Christ. We saw this rebellion mentioned earlier on in chapter 11, didn't we? When Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. This demolishing of sacred altars and this false teaching and prophets devouring the people and, and, and wicked kings. This is the history of Old Testament Israel in large part. The first century Church in Rome was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, but the Gentiles were by far in the majority. One can understand then why there might be questions about the spiritual state of Israel. Why are Gentiles pouring into the church while Jews continue to reject Christ and even persecute Christians in Jerusalem and elsewhere around the Roman world? Has God's word failed in this regard? Has God's word failed in this regard? Have his promises to Israel been thwarted? Has God's saving plan for Israel been frustrated? Or as Paul asks in verse 1 and verse 11 of our text in chapter 11, has God rejected his people? Did they stumble that they might fall utterly and completely to their destruction? These were questions that Paul sought to answer. And we shouldn't uh, be... Too surprised to hear questions like this, right? Uh, have you ever questioned the promises of God? Have you ever questioned His faithfulness? Well, of course you have, and so have I. You see, this is often what happens when we are still struggling with remaining indwelling sin and we live in a complicated world and, 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 uh, Uh, We struggle and we fight and we seek to exercise faith in Christ. And there are times when we doubt and struggle and have fears and anxieties. And, And so the early church is no different in this regard. And so Paul is seeking to answer these questions about Israel. He's doing so in chapters 9 through 11. And here we are at the end of chapter 11. But what we've learned over the past several months is that God's word indeed has not failed, it never does. God's promises have not been thwarted. They never are. God has not completely rejected Israel, and he never will. God is faithful. Say that again God is faithful. He is faithful in the early days of creation, he's faithful throughout Old Covenant history, he's faithful in the first century. When Paul was writing this letter to the church at Rome from Corinth, he's faithful throughout all of the centuries until this very day. He is faithful, and he is saving sinners, both Jew and Gentile, according to his sovereign purpose and electing love. You see, when we preach a biblical theology and a God-sized theology, We do not begin with us. We begin with God and His sovereign purpose and plan to send His Son into the world to save sinners. It starts with Him and comes down to us. It doesn't start with us and then go to Him. It's an important point, and it's one that's being reinforced all over the pages of Scripture. Christ is building His church by saving Jews and Gentiles from all over the world, one people of God, not two. Not Israel and the church, as some movements have sought to teach since the late 19th century. One church, one people of God, not two. As Paul writes in Ephesians, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down in Christ, there are not two peoples of God, Israel and the church. There is one people of God, the church, which is the true Israel. The true spiritual Israel, constituted of Jews and Gentiles who are united to Christ by faith. Any system that teaches that someone can be saved apart from faith in Christ, merely having ethnic ties of some sort to Israel is teaching a false gospel. Paul, all over the pages of Scripture, and particularly here in Romans, is making it clear that whether you are a Jew or you're a Gentile, you're a sinner. And whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are a sinner who is in need of the person and finished redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're learning here. And we're getting the view, as it were, from heaven as Paul is asking these big questions and God is inspiring him to write down these answers about what God is doing when it comes to his work of salvation in Israel and in the world. You see, God has not utterly rejected his people and the Apostle Paul's conversion is proof of that fact. It's what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 11. That's He is himself a descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Moreover, Paul writes in verses 2 and 3 that in Elijah's day when he was despairing, thinking he was alone as faithful in Israel, God told him that he had kept for himself 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. This, of course, meant that a very large majority of Israel were bowing the knee to Baal and living in gross idolatry and unbelief. However, and please hear this, their disobedience did not wreck God's plan in Elijah's day, in Paul's day, or in our own day. You see, it established God's plan because God's purpose of election will stand. Indeed, just as God had a chosen remnant out of Israel in Elijah's day, so he had one in Paul's day, and Paul was a part of that remnant along with others. Look with me again at chapter 11 and verse 5 as paul makes this point very clear so too at the present time so so too means just as there were was a remnant in elijah's time the 7000 that wouldn't bow the knee to baal so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by what grace not by works not by God looking through the portals of time and seeing who's a good person that he will choose unto eternal life. Chosen by sovereign grace. Now we have spent months unpacking this beautiful yet oft misunderstood doctrine of election. And we won't seek to cover all that here, but Paul once again is making it clear that salvation is all of grace. It's all of grace, it's not the result of good works, or ethnic background, or religious affiliation, or family connections, or religious rights, or good intentions. God's sovereign purpose of election punctuates this point that salvation's by grace. It highlights the truth that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. Salvation is an undeserved gift of God's sovereign grace in Christ. Even our faith in Christ is a what? It's a gift, lest any man should boast. And this idea of boasting or having pride of place or position is at the very heart of this passage, as as we will be reminded of in a few moments. In Christ, we are objects of God's sovereign mercy. You know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee who gives thanks to God that he does all these righteous things, I tithe a tenth of all that I have, I I do this, I do that, and thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector over here. The tax collector, who was so stricken with a sense of his own sin, could not even lift his... Eyes to heaven. And all he could say was, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ asked, which one of these went away justified? And we know the answer. Not the one who put his faith in his own works and in his own self-righteousness, but the one who recognized his sin and his need for mercy. And you know if this tax collector Lived the rest of his life. Let's say he got involved in the church and he uh, started teaching Sunday school. Went on a bunch of missions trips. Helped a thousand old ladies across the street. Uh, he did all these marvelous things for the rest of his life. Do you know what his only plea should be and must be at the very end of his life? Let's say he lived to be a hundred years old, and for 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 eighty years he 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 served in this. Uh, sublime way, the Lord Jesus Christ, his only plea at the end of his life should be what? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what we are. We are objects of grace. But as we learned last week, some of the Gentile believers in Rome were boasting. Indeed, they were being arrogant toward the Jews about their inclusion into the people of God. While a majority of the Jews were rejecting God's promised Messiah. The Gentiles were experiencing the covenant blessings of Israel. I mean, think about the old covenant people of God in their good moments, thinking that all of these surrounding idolatrous nations, that members of those nations would one day be experiencing the blessings of Israel, probably would have been somewhat inconceivable to them. Though we see these promises made early on in Genesis chapter 12. The Gentiles were experiencing the covenant blessings of Israel while the majority of Jews were not. But rather than respond with humility and gratitude for God's grace, some of these Gentiles were being prideful. And it was likely causing some division in the church. Can you imagine that? Pride causing division in a church? It's not unlike... How we can sometimes be prideful, beloved, thinking that somehow we as Christians are superior to others, that we've deserved what we've been given, When the salvation that we've received is intended to humble us to the dust and to give us grateful hearts and foster within us not a contempt for the lost, but a compassion for the lost and even a love for our enemies. Once again, as we enter election season, we hear such vitriol coming through the airwaves and through our screens. Nobody gives anyone the benefit of the doubt. It's crush and cancel, crush and cancel. Both sides of the aisle, crush and cancel. And sometimes, as Christians, we can begin and and quite frankly, it's, it's often because there's so much news coming into the ears, so much of this coming through the eye gate that we are being discipled in this way of communication and in this way of thinking of others. So we don't think of others as people who need the Lord. We see them as people on the other side of the issues who need to get their head screwed on straight. And here we are being reminded, beloved, that we are Christians, saved by sovereign mercy, and our worldview does not come through a political party, it comes through the scriptures, which we are learning even now. Look with me at verses 20 through 23 of chapter 11. Paul writes, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, namely Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness or his grace. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. This is teaching that in Christ we are called to continue in God's grace and kindness and not to develop a heart or pattern of pride which essentially is fueled by unbelief and maybe an unbelief that was there all along as we learned from the four parable of the four soils last week. He says, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. And he's saying so, and the Jews who uh, have been unbelieving for a time may, by God's grace, be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Isn't that encouraging? God has the power to graft them in again. Sometimes we write off friends or family members or coworkers who think, there's no way that they will ever become a Christian. I mean, listen to them. They're so vehemently against the gospel. They're so caught up in the world. And yet God has the power to save them. He has the power to graft them in, as it were. So Paul is teaching the Gentile believers in Rome, number one, not to be arrogant, but to continue in God's kindness that has been shown to them, to abide in his grace and live with grateful and growing obedience. Number two, He's teaching them that if Jews do not continue in unbelief but embrace their Messiah by faith, they too will be saved and grafted into the people of God. And number three, that God has the power to save his elect, both Jews and Gentiles. And he will do it. He will do it. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. This truth is intended to cultivate both humility and confidence in the Lord. And so we come to this new section this morning, which is in many ways a continuation of all that Paul has already been saying. I've divided up these eight verses into three headings, if you're taking notes this morning. Number one, a profound mystery. Number two, a precious deliverer. And number three, a preeminent mercy. A profound mystery, a precious deliverer, and a preeminent mercy. Number one, a profound mystery mystery. Look with me again at verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, does anyone think that what's being taught here is that all Israel will Anyone who's ever been connected to Israel as a nation and has Jewish blood will be saved. Does anybody really believe that? Well, no one, well, no one believes that. Uh, Maybe a very small minority of people that believe that. But uh, this idea based on a gazillion scriptures cannot be uh, the case. And so we need to understand what this all Israel will be saved means. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing specifically to the Gentile believers here, and in particular, to those who have started to become arrogant because they are replacing unbelieving Jews in the people of God. You see, lest they rely upon their own fallen wisdom, therefore, lest they be ignorant of God's mysterious plan for Israel, Paul reveals to them that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, we've already encountered this hardening language, haven't we? We see it in Romans chapter 9. You remember that Paul states in Romans 9, 18 that, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, what? Hardens whomever he wills. And in verse 7, Of our chapter 11, Paul writes, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel seeking? Salvation by works. But they did not obtain salvation because you cannot get it by works. He says, They failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were what? Hardened. As it is written... God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And so we have this mysterious hardening language. And it underscores God's sovereign wrath and judgment towards sin and unbelief. For a time, therefore, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. So our text states in verse 25 that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is, until all elect Gentiles are finally saved. This, of course, is one of the main verses that people highlight in order to establish that Romans 11 is a chapter primarily speaking about the future salvation of Israel rather than about the salvation of the Jews in Paul's day. People look at Romans 11 as, as a, and this is a, a really a majority view among Christians uh, because of how much impact dispensationalism has had upon theology and the American church, but, but also uh, a post-millennial view will advocate for uh, Romans 11 being mainly about the future. And I think that there are legitimate um, uh, uh, arguments for this view uh, that you will soon, soon learn I do not have. And I'll seek to show you why. Again, many interpret this verse and the rest of chapter 11 as describing a great future revival or massive ingathering of Jews coming to Christ um, after the last elect Gentile is converted but I don't believe this verse uh, or this chapter gives warrant to such a view. And I want to explain to you why. And by the way, if I'm wrong and there's a great ingathering and massive revival of Jews at the end of time, praise God. (laughs) That's wonderful. I'll be very happy to be wrong. I'm just trying to bring out what I think the scripture is conveying here. The word until, in verse 25, look there, the word until or as some translations say, then, or after that, are simply not good translations of the Greek word utas. It shouldn't be translated until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. No, a better rendering would be in this manner or thus. In other words, verse 25 should say, a partial hardening will come upon Israel in this manner. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in, or thus the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Remember what we've been learning already, that the unbelief of the Jews has opened the door to the Gentiles in order to make the Jews, what, jealous so that then they will come in. This is what we just read earlier and what we've studied already in previous messages. One commentator explains that, quote, in none of the other occurrences of this word in Romans or anywhere else in the New Testament does this word have the meaning of until. And dear ones, doesn't this make more sense in light of the context? Paul has been driving home a remnant theology. A remnant theology. All throughout chapters 9 through 11. And he is focused not primarily about what God is going to do in the future, but what he is doing in the first century church in Paul's day. Remember verse 5 once again. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. We've got a runner. You know, I've tried to steer clear of Pentecostalism, but here we are, you know. Here we are. So too, verse 5 says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Does this sound like a future ministry or a present one? It's a present one. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me of Romans 11. And ask yourself, does this sound like Paul is talking about a future revival or something happening at present? Verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, namely the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now is used three times. This is what God is doing during Paul's time. It also intimates about what he's going to continue to do throughout time and what he's been doing for the past 2,000 years, but it does not relay an idea about some massive revival. We have a remnant theology being underscored here. And he is certainly not focused on a future nation state of Israel. It's not what we see here. There's nothing of that here. And to try to find that is to do exegetical gymnastics. And again, we're taking chapters 9 through 11 as a whole. Here Paul is punctuating the point that he made in chapter nine, verses six and seven. Look there with me. chapter nine, verses six and seven. I hope you had your second cup of coffee this morning because uh, as I said before this is, these are challenging uh, themes and and uh, and texts. but look look with me at verse, at chapter nine, verses six and seven this the, what he is saying at the end of chapter eleven is punctuating the point he makes in chapter 9, 6, and 7. Quote, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Who then are the true Israel of God? Who are the true children of promise? Well, the answer is, and Paul's been saying it over and over again, Jews and Gentiles, who, by God's sovereign grace, believe the gospel and are one in Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. He came to this world to save Jews and Gentiles. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. Paul writes, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. In this manner, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Doesn't this fit the context so much better? It is in this way, this way of Israel rejecting the gospel, Paul literally, in one of his preaching ministries in Asia Minor, turning from the Jews, literally, to the Gentiles and saying, the Jews have rejected it, I now turn to you Gentiles, and the Gentiles rejoice, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, it says. Acts 13, Acts 18. And then, as the Gentiles are believing this gospel, there will be a remnant of Jews who are still in their sin, who in God's providence become jealous of these Gentiles enjoying the salvation blessings of the covenant people of God. They get Jealous, and then they come to Christ, and they are engrafted back in. The Gentiles, you remember, have come in as a result of Israel's rejection. But according to God's plan, this will make Jews jealous, leading them to saving faith in Christ. It's in this way, or as you can write, through this process, that all Israel, the true Israel of God, constituted of Jews and Gentiles, will be saved through faith in Christ. This leads to our second heading, a precious deliverer, a precious deliverer. Paul, he begins to quote the Old Testament as he is so prone to do when he's making his case, when he's making his arguments under the inspiration of the Spirit. He writes, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One commentator writes that Paul uses a skillful symposium of several Old Testament passages to make his case. Isaiah 59 and verse 20. Isaiah 27 and verse 9. Isaiah 59 and verse 21. These are texts in which Paul draws from to make the point that salvation is through this deliverer who has come from Zion. And he is the one who will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He He will save Jews from the power and penalty of their sins. And this will be my covenant with them, he writes, when I take away their sins. This is an allusion to Jeremiah 31, is it not? In verses 31 through 34. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What was that covenant? It was the covenant made with Moses. It was the law covenant. And they broke it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the promise of the gospel. The deliverer, God's Son, the promised one has come from Zion. As we confessed earlier in the Apostles' Creed, he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. He was anointed and set apart for ministry at age 30. He was sinless his entire life. He worked great miracles He taught and preached with authority about the gospel and the kingdom. And then he fulfilled his mission by going all the way to the cross to pay for our sins. To make atonement for the sins of both Jews and Gentiles. He paid for our sins by dying on the cursed tree. He bore God's wrath in our place. And on the third day, he rose again for our justification and for the forgiveness of all of our sins. You see, the forgiveness of sins, dear ones, is not the consequence of God just waving his magic wand and having a, uh, a kind of relaxing his standard or relaxing his holiness or relaxing his law. The forgiveness comes at great cost. It's what we're reminded of every time we come to the Lord's table. We receive forgiveness because Christ atoned for our sins. And it's through his blood that we receive the forgiveness of sins. It's through faith in Christ that we are not only forgiven of our sins, but we receive the very robes of Christ's righteousness. So now, rather than standing before God condemned because of the tattered robes of our own unrighteousness and sin, we now stand before God with our tattered robes nailed to the cross and we bear them no more and we are wearing the very vestments of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So now we stand before God no longer condemned but justified and God has not relaxed his law. He has not, he has not pushed aside his standards. No, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so holiness And love kiss at the cross when Christ dies for us. Christ pays for our sin and gives us the gift of righteousness. Christ redeemed the remnant, and he brought Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. Charles Wesley in 1738 put it this way, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine bold i approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through christ my own this is what christ has done for sinners and as we view things from heaven as it were as paul unpacks uh, what god is doing in his providence to to Set forth his gospel promises to old covenant Israel through uh, the sacrificial system and the prophets and promises and the covenants. And, and as those people rejected that, and, and, but, but there was still a remnant there. Uh, there was still a remnant saved by God's grace. Uh, according to God's sovereign purpose of election. But then we come into the New Testament and we see the Jews continuing to reject it. But then this opens the door to the Gentiles to receive the gospel, and they do. And then it makes some of these Jews jealous. And so they believe on the gospel too. And and Jews and Gentiles are brought into the one people of God. There aren't two peoples of God. There's not some uh, thing that we're anticipating where there's gonna be Israel and the church sort of in eternity, a re-erecting of the temple and all of these things that dispensationalism has taught for the last 150 years? No. Christ is the one true sacrifice and there will be no other. And he is the true temple. And we are in him, our living head. The question is this morning, dear ones, is do you believe this? Because all of this glorious theology It really comes down to this. Do you believe the gospel, the good news, that Christ died for sinners? That he is truly the deliverer. That he is the deliverer, and in him is found the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Do you believe that? You say, what do I do? Romans 10, the last chapter. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. Everyone, no matter where you're from, no matter what family you come from, no matter what you've done, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe in him, and you will never be put to shame. You will stand tall on the day of judgment robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Finally, we have a preeminent mercy. A preeminent mercy. Look at verses 28 and following with me. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so now you see the juxtaposition between what God is doing in Israel among the Jews and what he is doing among the Gentiles and how we ought to think rightly about these things to foster humility and gratitude in the Christian life and unity and oneness in the church. And so the gospel declares to these first century Gentiles that elect Jews are presently enemies for their sakes. What does that mean? Well, again, their disbelief has opened the door for them. And so it's for their sakes that they are currently enemies. But as regards election, they are beloved by God and united to them. In other words, some of these who are enemies are the elect of God and are beloved by him. Verse 32 is in this same vein. All elect sinners were born in sin, and object of God's wrath, but in Christ he will have mercy on all of them. This is not teaching universalism, obviously. So we have to ask what all means. It's not all people, but the total number of those whom God has chosen by grace before the foundation of the world. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Isn't that wonderful? The gifts and the calling of God, the saving calling of God are irrevocable. They're irresistible. They're unchangeable. God's purpose shall stand. Nothing shall thwart his saving purposes. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans 8. Again, beloved, this is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. You say, well, pastor, I'm just having a hard time believing that God is sovereign over all of these things. It's, you know, it's really hard to understand. Let me ask you something. Is it hard to understand the human psyche <laughs> and all the psychology that goes on in the fallen human mind and about how many Christians are thinking about God in this way, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And every day it seems different because you think that your salvation is rooted and grounded in a decision that you made in the past rather than in God's sovereign grace and election and that your decision for him was the result of him making you alive in Christ, Ephesians 2, and believing on him and being saved. You see with everything going on in the world today, with all the uncertainties we are facing geopolitically, even personally, we must remember that God's saving promises are true. To the Jew first and to the Gentile, we can trust him, we must trust him and continue in his kindness and remember his mercy and may this motivate us to live with Christ-centered humility and God, God, our gospel-centered confidence. May we not be wise in our own eyes or proud of our place in God's kingdom. We are objects of God's sovereign mercy. And this fosters, it should foster, it must foster humility, not arrogance, love, and not hubris. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, one we must admit that is challenging, one we know people disagree on in terms of its focus and emphasis, but Lord, we all agree, no matter what take, that Christ is the deliverer, and that in him we have the forgiveness of sins, and you are working out your great purpose of election in mysterious and glorious ways, and we can trust you for your promises are true. O Lord, Would you remind us of this even more as we come to your table and partake of the body and blood of Christ by faith. We pray this.